Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this morning it's found again, we did last week in 1 Corinthians, this time uh, chapter 11, another warning from Paul to the Corinthians and to us. Let me read it starting at verse uh, 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among, among you in order that those who are genuine among you will be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do we not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Well, Paul is uh, pretty clearly upset with the Corinthians in this point um, in the way they, did, they were acting at the Lord's table and at other, other feasts. Um, the rich, those that had plenty, despised the poor and ate and drank all that they brought, left nothing for those that uh, didn't have. The poor were, allowed to, were left without, while others had more than, a, more than enough. At the Lord's Supper and other feasts, which should have been really a time of mutual affection and bond, was really made as an instrument of discord and disunion. I think for us, Paul's trying to say we should be careful that nothing in our behavior appears to despise or humiliate those that we share the sacred union as the body of Christ. Never, let us never rest on our outward forms of worship here, but look to our hearts. And this is why we come right now to call to, uh, to our confession as we examine our own hearts and confess where you have fallen short and sinned against God. If you have your Bible, our sermon text is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. So let's prepare now to hear the reading of the word in anticipation of the preaching of the word. This is the word of our Lord. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you that you are the living and true God and that you have condescended to us and by way of covenant revealed your triune glory, that you've revealed your desire to dwell among your people and your plan of salvation, to give your elect to Jesus, the God-man. We praise you for the incarnation, and we praise you that it is Jesus and his spirit, your Holy Spirit, that carries your word into our hearts. And so, Lord, we ask that your word would change us, that we would be conformed to the image of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, for your glory, but also that 
your church might be the light to the nations that you've called us to be. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus and amen. Well, it's always, always a pleasure to preach, but it's especially a pleasure to preach in this pulpit. When, um, you know, over 10 years ago down in Indiana, I was at a sister church and I did my pastoral training. And during that training, they would encourage me, uh, the elders would encourage me to find time to do pulpit fills. And so sometimes I would come up to Christ Church. And so some of my earliest sermons and experience in the pulpit were, were here at this church. And so it's good to be here again. Even though a lot of water has been under the bridge since then, but it's also also a joy. It really is a sweet joy to be uh, worshiping in a church where there's so many children, to, in the right sense, compete with the voices of children, um, the, the voices, the sound of our covenant children. That is the hum of our God's worship war machine as heaven comes on earth. So never let it be a distraction, but even as you hear it. I know it's hard when you're the pew, right? When you're the parent and your kid's being loud, but that's a time to give thanks, right? My kid's here. He's being catechized. He's hearing the word. He's part of the covenant. My Lord will be faithful to him as he's been faithful to me, right? So we bring the gospel to our children in the context of the covenant. So something to give him thanks for. Well, as we jump into the sermon, we hear rejoice pray, give thanks, these indicatives, these commands. And it's always timely. It's always timely for Christians to be told to rejoice, for Christians to be told to pray, for Christians to be told to give thanks. It's always compelling for us. It's always compelling instruction for the disciples of Jesus to hear that message. But in the sermon this morning, I'm just going to focus on the last part, the discipline of giving thanks. And it is a Christian discipline. Giving thanks is a Christian discipline. One of the things I want us to consider is that those who excel in that Christian discipline, there's kind of two things going on. The first thing is they are acknowledging, and then secondly, they are celebrating God's rich provisions, right? So you're acknowledging something, and then you're celebrating it. Uh, the Westminster Confession talks about um, uh, we sh- you know, confessing sins particularly, confessing particular sins particularly, and it's kind of the same kind of idea is that when you give thanks, you need to give thanks for particular things particularly, Anybody can just, you know, just give vague, ascribe, uh, uh, praise you, God, thank you, God. And it's just vague. What, what exactly are you talking about? Have you, is there any real self, self-reflection going on or analysis of God's providence? And so that's kind of the, the point of the sermon. That's kind of the challenge of the sermon is, first, we want to acknowledge, and then secondly, we celebrate God's rich provisions in our lives. And that when we do give thanks, not just in all circumstances, but when we do give thanks, particularly... In life, during those figurative seasons of plenty and prosperity, it's as if we're going to be adding up and laying up storehouses of fuel and food for the leaner times in our lives. It's kind of a buttress for our perseverance for times when we will fall under trial. So think about in Michigan, a lot of people go out and split wood in anticipation of the winter. But if you wait till winter to split wood, you're going to have to do it when it's cold and the weather's lousy and the permaclouds up above and there's no sunshine and you're freezing. So what do you do? Well, in anticipation of that, you go split the wood and stack it beforehand. And I think we need to cultivate that type of discipline of giving thanks when life is good. Because if you don't learn to give thanks when life is good and prosperous, when the hard times hit, when you really need to be giving God thanks, right? Like this is when God is testing your faith, right? 
Like if you don't do it in the times of plenty, you probably won't when adversity comes. And so the scriptures in various times will present different practices that help sustain us in our Christian living. And the discipline of giving thanks, gratitude, cultivating gratitude is one of those practices. And for some of us, this vital discipline may be an overdue discipline. Right? It might be something that we need to pause and say, have I, have I, been, have I been seriously giving God thanks? Have I, have I been cultivating a heart of gratitude? Well, let's think about this text, some background and context as we dive in. The letter of 1 Thessalonians was probably written around 50, 51 AD. It's probably one of the earliest New Testament documents based off of that dating. And it's a letter written to the recent converts of the city of Thessalonica. When this letter was written, Thessalonica at this point was one of the principal cities in the region of Macedonia. It doesn't usually mean a whole lot to us today, but uh, it, was a, it was a hub of Roman trade at the time in the Roman Empire. And Thessalonica is located, that Macedonian region is kind of what we basically call today modern-day Greece, just to kind of throw it on a map. But in the book of Acts, which we read earlier from chapter 17, there we learn about Paul's ministry in Thessalonica. And, and it gives us helpful backdrop, context, uh, to understand, interpret what Paul is writing here. Paul's Thessalonica ministry was an enormous evangelistic success. You know it was an evangelistic success because a mob chases him out of town, essentially, right? This is when you know the gospel is successful, right? When the pagans revolt, when they, when they want to chase out the Christians. When the Christians are just coexisting, when the light is just hanging out with the darkness and nobody knows, that is not success. That is not evangelistic success, right? That's complacency, typically, a type of lukewarmness. And so we see there was an enormous evangelistic success, but it did stir up significant opposition. The local unbelieving Jews who were not picking up what Paul was dropping down, who refused to acknowledge the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures that it was Jesus the Christ. These unbelieving Jews were told they're jealous and that then they manufacture a local riot. They're moved by envy, they utilize bad actors, some ruffians, and they manufacture a local riot. Riot. They set the whole city in an uproar. Then we see that the newfound converts, the brethren, they send Paul away. It wasn't safe for Paul to remain. And so Paul desired to return to them, but he wasn't able to. Paul talks about that in chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians. So then Paul sends Timothy back to check on the Thessalonians. Timothy returns to Paul after he goes back. And this time, by this time, Paul is in Corinth. He's ministering in Corinth. And when Timothy gives his report about the converts and believers and how they're doing, as one commentator summarized, this is basically the report, quote, two things emerge about the Thessalonian believers. First, they continue to undergo suffering and persecution. But two, secondly, they are basically hanging in there with regard to their faith in Christ, end quote. And so this is the whole point of Paul's letter. He's writing to these Christians and he's encouraging them. He's exhorting them. Right? He's helping them keep focused on Christ and to pursue, uh, to persevere in the way of Christ, their newfound faith. In 1 Thessalonians, in light of Timothy's report about how they're doing, Paul then pens this letter. He wants to encourage, exhort, instruct them. And as we look at this passage, what we see is here at the end, chapter 5, uh, which our section of the text came from, this is the part of Paul's concluding exhortation to the Thessalonians. And as one commentator explains in this concluding exhortation, Paul, quote, is exhorting basic piety 
continual rejoicing, prayer, and thanksgiving, right? They are continuing to be persecuted. And what is Paul's word to them? Does he tell them this is the secret sauce to Christian flourishing? Does he say, hey, this is the silver bullet to overcome all of the oppression in your life? No. He basically writes to them and concludes exhorting them to basic Christian piety. He basically says, you're Christians, you need to act like Christians and keep doing Christian things. That's what Christians do, right? Basic Christian piety. That, that is the good life. That is Christian living. That is the kingdom of God coming on earth, heaven coming down on earth. So let's consider basic Christian piety here. Paul, when we read his other's letters, we're going to see that this, this command to basic Christian piety, specifically giving thanks, it's a repeated theme. So just look at a couple of Paul's letters. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 through 20, Paul says this. Ephesians 5, 18 through 20. But be filled with the Spirit as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, singing and making melody to the Lord in your hearts, giving thanks to God the Father at all times and for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus. Similarly, he says to the Colossians, Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, he writes to them, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with thanksgiving. And then Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 7. Do not worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. If we just survey those texts, those writings of Paul, clearly thanksgiving is a central theme. It's a central theme. It's one of the key pillars of basic Christian piety for Paul. And Paul encourages, he instructs these disciples of Thessalonica who continue to face opposition. He encourages them to persevere in that Christian discipline of giving thanks. And we need to understand that that discipline of giving thanks is just as important for us, right? We live 2,000 years later, totally different circumstances, but some things are similar, but the principle is the same, right? This is what it means to be a Christian. This is how you persevere as a Christian. We need to excel in this discipline of giving thanks. But what does it mean to give thanks? What does it mean to give thanks in all circumstances? What does it mean to keep alert in prayer with thanksgiving? Well, it doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense to people outside of the church, outside of the kingdom of God, but we have the scriptures, and the scriptures teach us all kinds of doctrines, and they all, they all gel together, right? And so giving thanks is in a context. It's in a context of truth, and the truth is our doctrine of God, that God is the master, the creator of the universe, and that as the master and the creator of the universe, he is sovereign over all things. So we have this doctrine of he's the creator of all things, and he also exercises government over all things. And then we have this doctrine of God, this doctrine of creation, this doctrine of providence. And that's the context in which giving thanks in all circumstances can make any sense, right? That's the context in which giving thanks in all circumstances makes sense, because a lot of circumstances in life are pretty gnarly, right? If we're honest, they're, they're pretty hard. They're pretty rough. They shake us up. So how is it possible to give thanks in all circumstances? Well, it's because we know that God's sovereign over all things. He's created all things. And there's nothing outside of his providential control. And so therefore, we can be thankful in all circumstances. We can give thanks in prosperity. We can give thanks in adversity. We can give thanks 
in seasons of wealth. We can give thanks in seasons of want, poverty. We can give thanks in all passages of life. And here's the kicker for most people. This is the one a lot of people struggle with when they look at Christians. We can give thanks even in the season of death. Even in the season of death, we can give thanks. One of the commentaries from the 17th century, English commentaries from the 17th century, says this. It talks about uh, whatever God sends us, this discipline of receiving it thankfully. It says this, quote, In prosperity we can receive what God sends us thankfully by giving thanks to God because God is crowning us with temporal mercies. Then it goes on and says, in adversity, we can give thanks because thereby God is trying our faith and our patience and gives us a sight and sense of our sins. In wealth, we can give thanks because God affords us thereby the means of doing much good. So for example, when Christians, uh, you have a, you're, you're lawfully employed, you're gainfully employed, you have income, and you are consuming less than you produce. So, so you know, there's, there, there's going to be an amount that you're not using. Um, and with that, with that, what can a Christian do? We can do great good for, for, for man, for the kingdom. We can give to mercy ministries. We can do alms. We can pay our taxes. And I know that's hard for a lot of people, but Romans 13, God's ordained government, right? Taxes are how the government machine moves forward. So we can even pay our taxes. We can support our family, education, just a myriad of things, right? That when God affords us with wealth, these are the means by which God's ordained for us to do good, right? To use that talent and to invest it for a return for for our master, 30, 60, 100-fold. Commentary goes on and says, In times of want, we can give thanks because God taketh away from us many nourishments of vice, right? Sometimes when poverty comes, it's God's way of basically uh, choking out and starving vice in your life, right? In God's wisdom. And I'm going to show you where vice is in your life by taking away your money. And you're going to see that vice now in a new way. And I'm going to starve that vice because I've basically taken away your paycheck. And in those times, God teaches us to depend upon him and his promise for our supply and support and not upon outward means and helps. The commentary goes on and says, in all passages of life, we can give thanks for his care and providence over us, and even at death for his delivering us from miseries of this life and presently receiving us into his heavenly kingdom, end quote. And so as Christians, we have many good reasons to be thankful, many reasons to give thanks. Just think about your own life now. Reflect on your own life. Think about all of the temporal, all of the spiritual blessings and benefits that you've been given, that you're a recipient of. Scripture says that God is the author of all good gifts, that God is at back all good gifts. James chapter 1 says, Every generous act of giving with every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Right? It's not your employer. It's not the invisible hand of the markets. It's not capitalism, it's not your strong, robust economy, it's not even your family, relations. No, ultimately, God is the one who is determining all of these good gifts in your life. And we need to acknowledge that, that God's at back of all these blessings, all these benefits. And one of the things we should pause on is, if it is all these benefits, all these blessings that come down from the Father of lights in heaven, it really is an incredible thing. 
right? Because we're sinners. Right? Every single one of us, head for head, is a sinner, right? And in Adam, in our first federal head, in Adam, by our sins, we have forfeited any right to all of the outward blessings of this life. And we deserve for them to be wholly, to be wholly deprived of them and even have them cursed to us in our use of them. That's what we deserve. That's what we've merited through Adam. But that's not what we experience, is it? That's not what we experience at all. God's character, his purposes are revealed, his words and actions, his providential dealings with man through history. And our life is not misery. Our life is not just misery, not just catastrophe. We actually experience again and again God's holy, wise, and merciful providence. God's mercy. Right? Mercy is the thing I've experienced right? again and again and again. The wrath I deserve, I haven't experienced. Who experienced that? Well, Christ did. Christ on the cross experienced that in my place as the second Adam, as our federal head, as the mediator between God and man. And so God richly provides for us, blesses us not just temporally with earthly blessings, but also, more importantly, spiritually. Regeneration, new life, right? The gift of saving faith, faith and repentance so that we can see and enter the kingdom of God. And this is the entire reason and basis why Jesus can then say things like, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven, for he makes his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Right, right now, during this time between Christ's first ascent, or his first advent, and his second advent, the second coming, where right now he's sitting at the right hand of the Father and he's reigning, at this point right now, you say, well, Jesus, why don't you just come back today? There's, there's sin over there. There's a, a rapes and murders and wars. Why don't you just come and make all this stuff end? Well, in God's wisdom, he's giving sinners time to repent. Right? Every day that goes by is a day of the Lord's mercy, where the gospel goes out, the word goes out, and God is giving opportunity again to bring all of the elect into the church, into the kingdom. Right? He's a God of mercy. We live in times of mercy. And we need to share that with the world. Right? We need to proclaim that with the world. And so Jesus tells his disciples, love for your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Right? God's the one who makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So the underlying assumption in giving thanks in all circumstances is that a believer is the one who can identify and meditate on God's holy actions, his merciful actions. The words of God, the actions of God, which reveal his nature and his decree and his will, his compassion and his mercy, that God desires to dwell among his people. This is what scripture teaches from Genesis to Revelation. Not just God's desire to dwell among his people, but in history, how he actually inaugurates that through Jesus and through the coming kingdom. And so in our own prosperity and wealth and health and the other passages of life, we have ample opportunities to acknowledge God, that he is the one who sends us all these blessings. And then our proper response is to receive them in thankfulness and gratitude. If God can cause the sun to rise on the evil, and if God can cause the rain to fall on the unrighteous, if God gives good gifts even to the wicked, right? How much more so are we behooved to thank God, not just for those common graces of, of life, but for effectual saving graces that we've experienced. 
It isn't as though we only receive temporal mercies. It's not as though God just gives us money and homes over our heads. But we also receive wonderful things from God through adversity, through want, through death. We experience countless mercies from God. As I said earlier, God uses all these providential dealings to reveal sin to us so that we can turn away from them. Uh, He gives us things so that we can do good works. He gives us income so we can do good works and support mercy ministries, things like that. And even another thing to think about is how even death is something that the Christian can give thanks for and anticipate for and prepare for because ultimately we understand that death, it's actually the escalator. It's the gateway into eternal life and the heavenly kingdom, right? Where we will, our soul will go to be with God in anticipation of the promise when Christ returns that he will raise our self-same bodies from the grave and reunite our souls to those bodies. But now let's think about giving thanks specifically as an aspect of religious worship. Prayer, specifically prayer with thanksgiving, is one special part of religious worship. In the worship service, there have been abundant prayers today, right? We've been responding to God's call to worship. We've been responding to God's call to confess our sins. We've heard the word read. Now we're hearing the word preached. And all of these have been peppered with prayer. But another thing to think about is how tithing, tithing, our giving back to the Lord from our increase in income, That is also a very tangible way for a Christian to manifest giving thanks in all circumstances. So, for example, whether an individual household is making a lot or making a little, whether they are living in a financial feast or they're living during a figurative season of financial famine, no matter the circumstance, a Christian household can give a tithe to the Lord and they can give thanks in all circumstances. So, hypothetically speaking... Let's say, say, you're, say maybe you do sales and commissions or something, and last week was just, a, was just a great week, right? It was a barn burner of a week for you, and you made $100,000, right? just hypothetically speaking. Or say last week you made $100. Well, guess what? You still had an income, and you can still tithe out of the large sum or the meager sum. And both of them give glory to God. Both of them are you expressing gratitude, you taking note of God's providential care and provision in your life, you're giving back to the Lord in faith and praising him for it. Right? So giving thanks is an aspect of our religious worship. And one of the, things that's, one of the ways it's manifested is through the, the offering of, of tithes during the service. Another thing to think about is in our lives, if there's no gratitude, then there's not going to be any contentment. We want to resolve to thank God in all circumstances, especially be grateful in times of prosperity, Because those who are grateful in prosperity will be moderate in their judgments, their wills, and their affections concerning worldly goods. So if God's blessing you, and as it comes in, you're acknowledging the blessing is from him, it automatically gives you a type of like, wait a second, I I, I need to be a steward of this thing from the Lord. right? I don't just let all the money burn a hole in my pocket the second I get it, and just spend on myself selfishly or without self-control, things like that. But, but not even just money. Like when God blesses you with friendships, when he blesses you with a good local church, when he blesses you with a good government, these are things to acknowledge and give God thanks for. And then to be moderate in your use of them, right? And to be a good steward of them and use them for his glory. But if somebody has an attitude where they just merely take and take and take and use all the blessings that God gives them and they're presuming upon those benefits and worldly goods... What they're doing is actually just cultivating an insatiable 
appetite. And this insatiable appetite, it catechizes them to ultimately be discontent and greedy. They begin to assume that they should get or have whatever they want whenever they want it. And we kind of see this in the kind of um, nominal, nominal uh, participation in Christmas in the culture, right? Christmas is just this big gift grab. And it's just like, oh, I didn't get what I want. Like, you know, that kind of stuff. And, and that's, that's sad. You want to push back against that as a Christian, right? But you really need to be aware that it's so easy in times of prosperity when all this stuff is coming at you just to take it and use it and not be reflective and not give God thanks for it and not be a good steward of it. The book of Proverbs describes, it gives a warning of that insatiable discontent appetite of those who do not cultivate this discipline of gratitude, this holy discipline. Proverbs 30 verse 15 says, The leech has two daughters. Give, give, they cry. Give, give, they cry. The leech here is obviously a symbol of greed. It's a greedy bloodsucker. And all it says is give, give. As Matthew Henry observed, this proverb reveals something about the insatiable, and it's an unholy craving. He says this, quote, So insatiable are the corrupt desires of sinners... And so little satisfaction have they, even in the gratification of them, end quote. And we've all seen this. You've had a coworker, or maybe a family, or maybe yourself in a season of your life, where you just had an insatiable desire for things, and, but there was never contentment with that insatiable desire. You just wanted more and more and more of whatever it was. And even as you acquired more and more and more of it, you could never find any gratification or enjoyment in the thing. Well, the reason it's an, unholy, it's an unholy desire, God's not going to bless that. You're not going to find gratification. You're not going to find enjoyment in that thing, even the good gifts of God, with that type of attitude. And contrast that type of thing with Paul's instruction. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 6, Of course there is great gain in godliness combined with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world so that we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. And I think, I think that's convicting, right? How many of us, if we're honest with ourselves, could say what Paul says right there? Right? I didn't bring anything into the world. Everything I have is a gift. It's from God. If I just have food and clothing, can I be content with just that? The bare necessities of life? Right? The, the, the most meager form of living here on this globe. Could I be content with that? And I think it's helpful for us to, passages like that, to let them read us. Read our hearts, read our emotions, read our families, read our church. We should ask ourselves if that could be true of us. If you found yourself in a circumstance where you only have food and clothing, where you only had the basic necessities of life, would you be content with those? And parents, I think it's a challenge for us, right? This is a call for us to think about in our parenting. Are we raising our children to be content with the basics, right? Most of our kids have way more than the basic necessities of life, right? But are we raising them in such a way that if God and his providence took them to that point, if God for some reason called them to be a missionary somewhere, where they really probably are just getting by with the basic necessities of life, could they be up to that challenge, up to that calling in their life. And kids, this is a question for you, right? Sermons aren't just for adults, they're for all of us, kids included, right? Could you be content if all 
God provides your parents with to provide you with is things like food and clothing, just the basic necessities of life. Could you have that type of Christian discipline in your own life? So we realize that contentment, scripturally speaking, is paramount. And that giving thanks in prayer, exercising gratitude and prosperity is a very important pillar of basic Christian piety. Paul goes on, he gives this sober warning. He says in 1 Timothy 6, continuing, But those who want to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. And so here we see the apostolic warning about discontent, about greed, about ingratitude, and how it plunges people into ruin and destruction. And then I'll also make an argument by analogy, kind of from the lesser to the greater. So if Paul is writing to individual Christians, and he's writing to Timothy and giving instruction, but if we need to be content as a household, as a Christian, if God just gave me the basic necessities I need, like food and clothing, can I be content and thankful for those? Right? So arguing from the lesser to the greater, let's think about the church. The church is an institution or is a family. If all you had were the basic necessities of a church, what would those be? Just the preaching and ordinary means of grace, the sacraments, right? Would that be enough? Would you be content with just the ordinary means of grace, right? Like if a church can have a robust church life, deep fellowship, if a church can be exceedingly healthy and vibrant and, and combating the culture, those are good things. But could you be content just with the mere necessities of church life. I think it's a challenge to think about too. A lot of people will love a local church because of what they envision the church can be. But we're actually called to love the local church for what she is. It's the same thing, right? Be, be grateful for what it is today. Just like in your own life. I'm grateful for what my life is today, Lord. I'm grateful for my wife and my kids I have right now. I'm grateful for the job I have right now. Grateful for your provisions today. Right? That, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about giving thanks taking note of God's providential care and provision for you, and then giving him praise for it and acknowledging it. And it's a principle that applies to different aspects of life. Your personal life, your marriage, parenting your kids, your relationship with your employer, your church, your government, broader society, your time and place in history, right? It's really easy for us to think, I want to go live back in the golden age of whenever you thought everything was great, right? That's, that's a lie. That's a lie from the devil. Right? God puts you here right now. Right? He puts you here right now in his perfect wisdom. As one godly minister taught, quote, respond to each providence in an appropriate way. Right? That's the discipline. Respond to each providence in an appropriate way. We can do this by acknowledging God's providence, by taking note, by observing, by reflecting on, analyzing God's providence and faithfulness to us, treasuring up God's providence. As the same author went on and said, he said, quote, O Christians, treasure up these instances for such a time as that is, that you may go out of the world blessing God for all of the goodness and truth he has performed for you all of your life long. One of the greatest joys I've had as a minister is walking with people, walking with saints as they've died. There was an elderly man from our church back in Montana. His name was Leo. He lived in sin for years, and he was converted in old age after all of his kids were grown up and out of the house. And, you know, he just lived a hard life, and then at the end of his life, his wife died from cancer, and so for several years, he was just a widower. 
and I would go and visit with him, and he exemplified this. Somebody that knew that all I've experienced from God is mercy, all I deserved was wrath, and I didn't get wrath because Jesus is my Savior. And he went out of life reflecting on all of God's blessings in his life, and he was giving praise all the way out. Just an incredible thing. Incredible thing for a young minister in my first pastorate. Incredible thing for his family. Incredible thing for his grandchildren who saw him do that. It's incredible. So these are good words for us. And when we do this, when we do give thanks to God in times of providence, we are, in a sense, we are building up storehouses and fuel for our hope, buttresses to help us persevere under future trials. And here, finally, I want us to consider this in preparation for the table couple of things. We can give thanks in all circumstances ultimately because of Jesus, right? We can give thanks in all circumstances ultimately because of Jesus and because of the gospel. Life is a gift, and then on top of that gift of life, the fact that you were born and you get to trod and plod around here on this globe, this incredible enchanted world, right? Life is a gift, but on top of that, eternal life is a gift. We didn't merit our first life or that second life of coming into the kingdom, right? We didn't merit or deserve any of it. All of it is gracious. All of it is grace. All of it are just manifestations of the mercy of God revealing his holy desire that he wants to know you personally, that he wants you to dwell with him forever. And gratitude is the only appropriate response to that grace and mercy, right? As you think about the table here, I always like to tie all sermons to the table. In anticipation of the word of institution, which we're going to hear here shortly as we observe the Lord's Supper, consider how on the night that Jesus was betrayed at the, at the table with his disciples, what are we told? We're told that Jesus gave thanks. On the night that he was betrayed at the table, he gave thanks. And here we see that our Lord and Savior set for us the example that we might put on the image of Christ and also be Christ-like in giving thanks. Our Lord and Savior on the doorstep of death was giving thanks. He was demonstrating for all Christians how to give thanks in all circumstances. Jesus was able to give thanks because he trusted the power and promises of God. Jesus demonstrates, even through the institution of this sacrament, basic Christian piety the discipline of giving thanks. Through this sacrament now, Jesus is spiritually nourishing us, equipping and strengthening us in basic Christian piety. So let us, therefore, prepare for the table, rejoicing, praying, and giving thanks. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We rejoice that you are the living and true God and that the word that you've revealed, that your Holy Spirit inspired holy men to write, that it is a living and active word. We ask that your word would change us. Change us, Lord. If we have been discontent, if we have been ingrates, if we've just been taking, taking, if we've been like the daughter of the leech, give, give, if we've had insatiable appetites, unholy appetites, we ask, Lord, that you would sanctify us, that you would purge all of that from us. And we know that the way you do that, Lord, is through the gospel equipping us by your spirit to lose sight of ourselves and focusing on Jesus. Fill our sight with him now and teach us to pray as you taught your disciples to pray.
come to the Lord's table this morning. I'll be reading from Isaiah 60, the first three verses. Arise, shine, for your light has come, for the glory of Yahweh has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth and a dense gloom the peoples. But Yahweh will rise upon you and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. As we gather to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, the words of Isaiah provide tremendous comfort to us as we consider Christ's incarnation during this epiphany season. The light has come to us. The glory of Yahweh has risen over us and we are no longer a people sitting in darkness. The kingdom of light has come to us to banish the kingdom of darkness. The stain of sin, the gloom that comes from the kingdom of darkness is felt every day in our lives. We see the brokenness in our relationships, in our understanding of who God is. Every area of life has been held in a dense gloom. Most of us even experienced this gloom just a few weeks ago on Christmas Eve as we were driving to and from service. We could barely see a few car lengths in front of us and that is a picture to us of the gloom in our lives. It limits our judgments and impairs our understanding. This table before us and our union with Christ cuts through that darkness and gloom, removing that gloom of our separation from God and restoring us to true fellowship with our Creator. Let us eat this meal then resting in our risen Lord, the light that has come to banish the darkness, the glory of Yahweh that has risen upon us, the gifts of God for the people of God. The body of Christ broken for you. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.